and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Mitch joins me from Planet 5D to discuss hey. all kinds of news. Mitch, what have you been up to, man? I have been rocking all sorts of stuff. I'm, I'm doing all of my pre-NAB stuff. I'm exercising every morning so that I can walk the floor for four days. And I'm working on the live blog setup so that we have an awesome live blog, which will be appearing on... A great website called DSLR Film Noob. Yes, fact, sir. I will be already there. I will be posting cool. and keeping track of that stuff. Um, uh, it's really nice, Mitch. If you guys aren't familiar with this, Mitch does a really good feed where he basically brings together a bunch of different bloggers and combines them into a single stream, and then everybody puts it on their websites. So you can go wherever you like. If you're a normal visitor of DSLRFilmNoob.com, for example, you can swing over to the NAB coverage tab and you can watch as new posts come in as a stream from all these different people that are covering all the products that are on the floor. Mitch, weird question. What do you wear yep. for shoes when you're walking around the NAB floor <laughs> for four days? That's a great question, actually. Um, the very first two or three years, uh, I'm a Crocs wearer. Croc, Crocs wearer. Um, which Aren't those, those like weird my sandals? Children. Yes. Okay. I've always liked them because they're rubber, you know, and they're pretty thick. And and anyway, my wife convinced me two years ago that that was probably not wise because it's not really, you know, they're like sandals or kind of like flip flops, and and so your foot is working hard to keep the shoe on your foot, as well as walking and whatever. So she convinced me to buy some uh, uh, walking shoes, you know, tennis shoes, and. I did much better the the year that I had those on, so I forgot what brand they are, but they're brand name walking shoes. The reason I bring that up is um, as a filmmaker, a lot of times on set, especially if you have a long working day, you're going to be on your feet pretty much the entire day, and NAB is no exception to that. If you're standing around for a long time, make sure you invest in good shoes. Don't go with the stylish shoes. You know, Don't whip out a set of Chuck Taylors and figure that's going to get you through the entire day. <laughs> Make sure you spend the money, a hundred bucks, on some maybe some good New Balance walking shoes or something like that. The shoes will definitely make you feel so much better at the end of the day. Otherwise, you're gonna get back problems, you're gonna have arch support problems, and all that kind of stuff. And if you're a filmmaker, unless you're part of one of the guilds, you probably don't have that great of insurance. So, taking care of your body in advance is a good thing. And you know, there's something else that's really awesome. Typically at NAB, that many people skip. And that's uh, the massage booth. Have you ever stopped what? in there? Yeah. I didn't even know that was a thing. Oh, uh, the first couple of years they were actually out in the hall. Uh, but two years ago they they actually got a booth on the show floor in Hall C. And they you go by and you can spend 15 minutes and get a foot massage, and it is awesome. <laughs> At the end of the day, it costs you like 35, 40 bucks. But, man, you feel like heaven when you walk out of that place. Huh. That's a good yeah. note. Pro tip there if you need a massage. I think all the <laughs> motels around that area or hotels offer that as well. They're all pretty big that's places. That's a different so. kind of massage. <laughs> in Vegas, that's a totally different kind of massage. You all have right. to be careful what you're looking for. <laughs> all right. On that note, time for the news. <laughs> time for the news. Time for the news. 
First up on the news list, I've got the Miticon 42.5mm f1.2 micro four-thirds lens. This is a $399 alternative to Panasonic's $1,300 42.5mm f2, but is it any good? The answer, from early reviews, it doesn't look like it. Uh, Setter sharpness doesn't actually pick up until about f4, according to the photoblogger.com, and it is pretty dark in the corners. It is only three ninety nine for an F one two. Mitch, are you willing to give up center sharpness all the way up to F four for beautiful bokeh? No, 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 no. Now it depends. I mean, if you happen to be using a lens, baby, of course you give up a whole lot of focus, but uh, or sharpness around the edges. Uh, but I'm I. The thing that bugs me about this lens, and you're going to think it's funny. Uh, maybe, maybe, is the fact that the actual end that connects to the camera where the adapter is, is actually wider than the front. You don't it's, like that it tapers? It's, it's, it's bass backwards from the regular <laughs> lens. It's, lenses are either, you know, cylindrical or they shape out at the, at the uh, opening. I suppose um, a lot of them, though, especially like uh, I believe one of the lenses, the Verde, Vidar or Verde or the lenses that we were talking about earlier, those have an artificially right. tapered out front. The element itself is right. very small, but they wanted to keep the filter threads the same size throughout the entire length. So there's actually no reason to make the lens that big on the end. And in fact, um, one of the funny things about uh, some of the lenses that Red offers uh, is that their lenses are artificially bigger than they actually need to be for the elements that are inside of it because they felt that no one would respect the lens if it wasn't big and clunky like a regular cinema lens. But I I guess you're right. I'm looking at this now, and maybe that is a little bit funky. It doesn't drive me nuts, but... Yeah, I'm sorry. If you look at the the photography blog link you have <laughs> with the review in it, the fact that the lens, the whole camera is like tipping forwards as yeah. they rested on the table is just yeah, it's it's a dorky thing. Okay, it's driving. It's just it it's lame, but that kind of bothers me that it does that. Now I've used uh, pancake lenses like the 40 millimeter from Canon, but your camera doesn't tilt over when you have those. At least sits normally <laughs> yeah the cute little pancake lenses they are if you can see here the element when this actually extends this is the uh, 22 millimeter for the eos m system but uh the element when it extends forward is very tiny compared to the rest of it but since it's such a small right. lens it's not gonna bring you forward you do get the same problem with the um f0.95 and uh 25 millimeter f1 t- or f0.95 i'm sick man i'm messing this up today <laughs> but um those uh, uh voigtlander lenses are really front heavy so even on the gh4 which is a little bit bigger than the g7 that they're testing on in this particular demonstration it still pulls the entire camera forward and uh, you know with um, the 51 2 on your full frame camera it's going to be the same isn't it i mean uh, as far as i know it pulls it's it's bigger than the camera itself. That's like a, what, a pound and a, a quarter, a pound and a half? Yes. Hmm. Now, it works. Uh, thinking about uh, this from a price perspective, there are some good alternatives. Olympus has the 45mm F1.8, and that's about 260 bucks compared to the 399 price tag. And Panasonic has the new 42.5mm F1.7, which does have optical image stabilization. That's a $399 lens, so it's 
pretty much the exact same price as this Miticon. If you really want to have the bragging rights of F1.2, that's maybe the reason to get this. But uh, otherwise, it kind of, I mean, it, it looks, it's interesting, but it's not something that I'm going to rush out and buy. And I don't think a lot of other people are going to be really excited after reading some of the reviews on this lens. Yeah, uh, it's it's kind of disappointing when you go to read a review and they say that it's not sharp and through until you get to f4 in the center i mean that's where ex- people expect it to be sharp all the way through so yeah there are a few things though where that might be a benefit i suppose if you're trying to give some sort of dreamy look to your portraits and this is a 85 millimeter equivalent for micro four thirds which is considered to be a pretty decent portrait range this uh this lens being soft maybe it takes out some blemishes maybe it uh makes your face look a little bit smoother and dreamier i suppose there's an excuse to buy this um f12 seems to be the biggest one though well but you can you can accomplish that with slapping a filter on the front that is or true like in in the traditional really old days where they would just take some vaseline and slap that on the lens hey you can do it in a variety of different ways without having to buy a lens specifically for that. Strange side note, I actually saw a post, I don't remember where it was at, but uh, the guy was putting um, cellophane behind his lens before he mounted it onto the camera, and the cellophane was what was giving the dreamy look. And because the cellophane sort of folded and collapsed a little bit, it didn't quite give you that star pattern that you get with uh, whatever the type of filter that is. I can't remember off the top of my head. But it gave you like a lot of weird light changes as it was going into the sensor so that you had these kind of streaks of light going here and there, plus this sort of dreamy, um, less than focused look. Have you seen that? I have. I've actually heard of people doing that. I haven't seen the effect. Uh, There's also lens whacking, which we've never really talked about, where you actually don't have the lens attached to the camera, but you kind of hold it out a little bit to get some of that dreamy extra light coming in from the side, that kind of effect. I've always been nervous about doing that because it's so... You know, oh, whoops, I wasn't paying attention. I just dropped my lens on the ground. Or, boy, I just, like, ran around and some dust blew into the camera. There is a guy, and um, I'll find this and put it in the show notes if I remember, but uh, he sells a kit of pre-designed light leaks for post. So instead of having to do uh, lens whacking, if you really want that sort of light leak effect... He has these alpha-channeled designs that basically you just layer over the top of your video, and it applies a bit of filtering, plus it adds lightly to the corners, edges, and it does sort of a random algorithm to make it look nice. So if you're looking for that and you're not brave enough to, you know, run around outside with, say, your micro four-thirds lens, which has even less protection to the sensor than, say, a full-frame camera, (laughs) and try and lens whack, uh, that might be the way to go. Now, next up on the list here... Oh, go ahead, Mitch. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, if you search on Google for light leak plug in, there are gobs of them. They're all over the place. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Crumple Pop has one, and there's a there's large variety of those. So just do a search on Google. This next one's actually kind of in your bellywick. You were covering this. Uh, there are a ton of rumors floating around about the next 4K Canon release. Uh, they're really aiming to compete with the GH4. What do you know about this, Mitch? Well, I I think it's a very interesting, quote-unquote, rumor. Um, 
it it first sourced, I think, on Canon Rumors. We have a story about it that appeared a couple of days ago that Hugh posted. And the interesting part of the whole thing, of course, I've always said that Canon, I mean, Canon has told me many times, <laughs> we're not that interested in pushing the envelope so so much with the DSLR range. You know, they... They know 4K is something they're going to have to do eventually, but they weren't in a big hurry to get there because of all the things that you and I have talked about, the fact that there's not much delivery, blah, 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 blah. So even though Panasonic came out with the GH4 and the GH3 and all these other cameras and the Sony A7S that are doing 4K, they've never really felt that pushed in that direction. Now, one thing you have to realize is that Canon Japan is the one that does the pushing, right? So it's it's the Japanese market that that decides these things to begin with. So it's not necessarily the filmmakers in Hollywood or the United States that are pushing things. It's Japan. But in the one of the articles uh, from DP Review, one of the executives, Masada Yamaeda, and of course I'm butchering that name, and I apologize to the gentleman. Um, but he said, naturally, I can't give you details of our future plans, but we are fully aware such requirements exist <laughs> in the market. We are currently in the process of investigating, and we bolded this section, mainly to satisfy the needs of news media. What news media is shooting in 4K? Well, that's, that's the big question, and, and it goes back to the original design of the 5D Mark II was for whom? routers and news media guys so that they could get rid of the film crew and the photographer could go out and shoot photography as well as shooting video. Exactly. So, so that was their major emphasis. And here's this gentleman from Canon coming back and saying, well, we're still focusing our DSLRs to satisfy the news media, which kind of implies that they're not doing it to satisfy us, right? The filmmakers. Now, this is just one particular individual's uh, point that was made in an interview. So is that the overall thing? I don't know. Uh, but you know, like you say, does the news person in the field need 4K at this point in time? Hell no. Nobody's No news service is doing anything with 4K at this point. Well, thinking about um, a Japanese perspective, though, they are far advanced in their television broadcasting and uh, cell phone technology and everything else. So in Japan, I believe almost everything is 4K now, and I believe they do have some 8K out there as well. So maybe good point. he's thinking of it from uh, the Japanese perspective where there's been such a push to move to 4K because everything's almost all 4K in Japan that they figure, well, the rest of the world will eventually get to where Japan's at, so we need to catch up with with that need, and maybe they want to make sure that the... Homeland is using, you know, Canon gear for all their stuff. I, I don't know if that's right. the case or not, but that's the only area I know of where 4K is really uh, prevalent in news shooting. In most of the news stations here, when HD started to become a thing, they moved over to either 720p or 1080p, and they bought cameras early on. And we're talking like the two-thirds size sensors and so on. So those cameras, they spent maybe... 60,000, 70,000, they're going to run them for 10 years until they've recapped their investment on those cameras right. before they moved on to the next big thing. So I don't think we'll see 4K in the United States in news broadcasting for another five, maybe seven years, depending on which market and network area you're in, because that's a pretty exp uh, significant right. investment. 
Very significant. And it's and it's especially true even with something that would be very cool in 4K, and that's sports, right? ESPN has dabbled in 4K, but they're primarily doing it to be able to zoom in and deliver a 1080 signal with an artificial zoom. You know, we've talked about that and cropping and all that kind of stuff. Um, but in reality, if you go back and look at it right now, even ESPN is still most people are receiving ESPN sports in 720 and it's getting uprest on their TV to 1080. Uh, most cable systems don't do full 1080 for all kinds of broadcasts. So we're a long way from doing 4K in the United States. Well, and in some of the markets here in the Midwest, uh, the local television companies, because they still have stuff like Hamilton Net, which only covers you know half of Nebraska and stuff like that, those guys are still pushing out 1080i. So you're not even getting progressive. Right. You're getting like, you know, it, it's noticeable. It's kind of, especially if you have a nicer TV, it's pretty disgusting to watch. And, and they're getting away with it. So if they're getting away with it, they're going to continue to do it until there's enough demand to make them move. Same with uh, with ESPN, you know, 720p. I believe they went with that because they could get 60 frames a second so that they could really capture sports well. And they're going to be on that maybe until 4K gets to the range where they can get 60 frames per second again so that they can continue in the same route. And that could be five, ten yep. years out. Now, you know what slays me, and I know you don't watch much TV, no. but I sit and watch TV for about an hour, maybe two hours a day, okay? Uh, but it slays me because I still see commercials that are 4 by 3 SD. Oh, yeah. They're not even 1080. And I'm like, you guys haven't even moved to 1080 yet with some of this stuff. So, Well, go put out a, a um, yeah. pair of bunny ears the uh, and hook your TV <laughs> up to the local stations and see what they're doing. They're now yeah. we're in HD broadcasting, so you can receive HD channels, but the content will be in HD and the commercials that are inserted by the local station, they're four, three and they're just grainy as heck. And sometimes they blow them up and stretch them out and then they don't worry about yeah. title safe. So then the words disappear underneath of the screen when they're blowing it up and they're all <laughs> pixelated and everything. I don't know who's in charge of that, but it looks ugly. <laughs> it is ugly. Yep. Now, yes, Moving on down the line here, uh, if you're a filmmaker and you want to make a project and you want a grant of some kind or some sponsorship money, FilmDaily.tv has a pretty interesting list of about 25 or 30 different projects that basically offer up grants based on location, ethnicity, uh, gender, and all these other random criteria that allow you as a filmmaker to apply with, uh, say, a reel or something like that, or even some of these are just a script input, and get money for your project. And I think the caveat on most of these is that you turn it into whatever company or organization is uh, paying out the grant so that they can display it and show that the grant is doing something. Mitch, have you looked into any of this grant stuff? Do you know... Uh, which which ones kind of correspond to your area? Are there any grants in your area? Do they have local filmmaker benefits for that sort of thing? That's one of the things that I think is uh, sadly lacking. I haven't found anything. I'm I'm glad that this particular website exists with a list of short film grants. 
but I I tend to I've I've been asked several times to create something like this, and I'm like it takes so much effort to go find those people and validate them that we've never actually done it. Um, it just takes a lot of effort to create that. We we tried doing, for example. Uh, four years ago, I think it was uh, a list of uh, training resources, uh, people who were doing like a calendar of training classes that were going to be happening around the United States or around the world. And it's really hard to get people to, to send you that stuff. They think they've got their little website and they announce it and they maybe put out a press release, but nobody's really done anything in terms of consolidating all that information. So therefore it's really difficult to find these kinds of bits of information. Uh, I don't know how some filmmakers do it. It's, it's gotta be a lot of research on their part and somebody ought to come up with a way of, of creating a list like this that's bigger because I you know this is a great list. Yeah, it is. Uh, it it's missing a bunch of even, stuff too that I know yeah. about locally. Well, sure. That's kind of like, man, sure. how how would that make it onto this sort of national list so that more people would be able to apply for right. it and know about it? Um, I, I it's it's difficult, like I said, to organize something like this. I mean, it, if you think about it from the website's perspective, like this Film Daily TV. Uh, there isn't a whole lot of financial incentive for them to do something like this unless it's to gain readers somehow. Uh, it, because like I said, it takes a lot of work. You have to not only just hear about these things, but you kind of want to validate them because you know, some of these things could be scams or, or whatever. Uh, so it's just, it just turns into a lot of work, which is why nobody ever puts together a massive list like this. Uh, there's a couple of um, of different local sites. Um, NF, if you're in Nebraska, that I know of, um, NFA, which is the Nebraska Filmmakers Association, uh, in in our state, Nebraska, they have several different sections where they're trying to promote filmmaking because they had a few different films made in Nebraska. About Schmidt was filmed in Nebraska, and there's a number of other ones that were filmed at like Carhenge and stuff like that. Um, it, you you go check out those associations, <laughs> and they they post these things in Nebraska itself. The grants aren't that great. They're a thousand dollars here, or tax free for your production, or the um, the the area of um, of Seward, Nebraska, has an old historic downtown, and the town, in order to promote filmmakers, has allowed local filmmakers free access, and they shut down the downtown for you on Sundays, so that you can actually use the entire downtown to film, as long as you schedule it out in advance and work with the city council, and then you have to do this kind of uh, horse and pony show where you promote, but I mean it's wow. it's totally awesome that that's available. And if you go to Texas, it's the same way. Um, in Texas, there's a lot of stuff in the Dallas area and out into the, the kind of hinterlands where each of the little towns has like these little thousand dollar or two thousand dollar grants to get you to come film in that town. And then they offer you tax breaks, they offer you uh, tax incentives, and so on. So that if you're working on a low budget to medium budget project, it's really helpful. And if you're working on a micro budget, you could still, $1,000 goes a little ways to craft services, uh, paying for gear or, you know, getting actors out or whatever. So 
definitely look around your local community. NFA is just the one for Nebraska, but I'm sure there's filmmakers associations in every state that are at least out there and can help point you in the direction where you live to maybe find something like this or associate with other filmmakers. That's a great point. Now, there is one more thing for you guys um, on this uh, whole film filmmaking subject. Uh, there's a film festival website, and it, I believe it's called Film Festivals, uh, spelled A-L-S at the end. And that site basically glumps together every single film festival in the world that is available and then the submission fees. So if you're looking to get the, the good old, you know, wheat sticks on the side of your film that say like, you know, shown proudly at such and such film festival, uh, that's a good place to start. There are tons of film festivals that charge money, but there are also a number that don't. And I think it might be a racket. I don't know for sure. I mean, I don't want to like call call the film festivals out on this because I, I don't know which ones are legitimate and which ones aren't. But there's a number of them that charge like sixty or seventy dollars to submit. And if they're getting hundreds of submissions, I mean, that adds up pretty fast. And you're talking film festivals in small towns all the way up to the film festivals that take over entire cities in Paris and so on. So. Make sure if you're submitting that you do that financially savvily. Uh, maybe that's not the right, quite the right way to say it, but basically pay attention to what you're submitting and make sure you know where your film festival is going. And that's a good resource to start uh, to get your film out there and spread around. So if you are working on a project, make sure you look into the whole film festival circuit. I added that to the show notes, by the way. That looks cool. I've never seen that one. Yeah, there's a number of different things like this. I When I re- release a feature-length film, I do the festival circuit. So one of the ways that we make money on our films is actually by the fans meeting the actors and actresses and uh, the director and producer and all that stuff. So we get booths at you know, six or seven of these film festivals, and then we basically sell the film there at the festival. And the part that is nice is that you get to screen the film, do question and answer, and then after you're done screening, you go over to your booth, and then everybody floods over and buys you know four or five boxes of DVDs. And I know that's not the most <laughs> easy way to do it because you do have to pitch, and you have to talk to everybody, and you have to sign, and you have to you know shake hands and everything else. But... If you are working with actors that you haven't paid very much or whatever, it's really exciting for them because they feel like they're now important and people really want to know what they're doing and and see them. And then those same people will be excited about you and go back to your next uh, travel around the film festival circuit to buy the next film and see the next thing that you did. So those are all like little ways to kind of get your stuff out there. Now, speaking of get your stuff out there... um, This is another MacBook Air, skinny, tiny, petite, all those words. Thinner is better, (laughs) according to Apple. Uh, Basically, the MacBook Air new release is about a 12-inch retina display with a 2304 by 1440 screen resolution. It offers a single USB Type-C reversible connector, and Apple claims battery life of over nine hours on this guy. It's using a Broadwell M CPU from Intel, which means that it doesn't create a lot of heat, so this is fanless. It is really sexy looking, but... Let's take a look at that USB Type-C connector. Mitch, I know you're a more of a Mac guy than I am. You use Thunderbolt, correct? I do. 
So, and therefore, this particular device won't be very exciting to me. Why would Apple, moving forward with a device that previously had Thunderbolt, take that away and move to this Form C connector? I think this is a placement uh, thing you have to think about. They have not eliminated the MacBook Pro. Okay? <laughs> and that's where the Thunderbolt 2 and 3 things are going to be living which is the kind of machine that you and I would buy. Uh, obviously, you wouldn't because you're a Windows guy, but uh, if you're going to do filmmaking and stuff, you're going to get a MacBook Pro, and that they're going to still make those. So this is actually a MacBook, and a MacBook is a lower level. It's more of a consumer product than it is a professional product. So that doesn't surprise me, although you would think that Thunderbolt would be something since they've promoted it so heavily that they would want to do but they also wanted to create this this new connector i know they didn't create it but it's the consortium that's created this usb dash c uh the other thing that kind of bothers me about this whole thing is the fact that uh my macbook pro has the magsafe adapter for the power cord yeah and i can't tell you how many times that has saved my butt from whacking and and you know tripping over the cord and and knocking the laptop off of the desk, uh, so they've eliminated that. Uh, why somebody didn't say, hey, why don't we take the MagSafe and combine it with this USB thing? I mean, why couldn't they just make a connector that's a MagSafe adapter? I mean, this is all the USB C is a whole new thing. Uh, so I don't know. I'm I'm not an engineer, obviously, so I don't know how all these things work, but I really hate to see the MagSafe part go away. Thunderbolt's important, obviously. Uh, it's, it is nice and really cool to think that there is just one connector for the whole device and supposed to, you know, a whole bunch of different slots. Uh, but I also noticed that there is no headphone adapter. Yeah, you're supposed so to use wireless headphones wireless headphones which is could potentially be a problem for some people as well so it's it's cool it is sexy it's uh, it's an awesome looking machine it's small it's light um, it's not for everybody apple isn't aiming this at the pros and and it slays me when the pros get all whacked out and mad and upset but if if you slow down and think about it most people don't slow down when they first read these announcements they're like <laughs> oh that's so cool Slow down, think about what's in there and what's not in there, and then make your decision. But realize that this is not a pro device. It's a consumer device, and move on. Well, I think one of the things that um, a lot of the people (laughs) I know as photographers use the original or the previous generation MacBook Air for is is photo editing because it's so small. You can throw it into your bag. It doesn't take up a lot of space. And it, you can plug it in and you can plug in, you know, a card reader and go to town. This now, they do still sort of offer that option. For $75, they sell a special dongle that allows you to charge and adapt other USB devices to it. But, man, now you have to carry an extra dongle and stuff like that. So I know Wi-Fi access to your memory cards is getting better. And actually, um, one of the major manufacturers of uh, Wi-Fi cards, didn't they just release a new super fast to get your raw pictures off of your memory card thing recently mitch yeah the um god what's it called i don't know it's escaping me so i was was throwing it to you reading that 
<laughs> sure, throw it to me, and I. Um, I believe it's iFi is the uh, term yes, we're looking it. for. iFi. Uh, yeah. The iFi cards, the new ones, are designed to transmit your photos, your raw photos from the camera, and it's supposed to be the fastest, best bandwidth, or what have you. Um, the GH4 also offers up wireless connection, and so does the Canon 6D, the new 7D Mark II. So maybe Apple's expecting this for the photographers that use it to want to go with the higher resolution screen and wirelessly beam their stuff over to the laptop. Is that a right. maybe an option? I don't know. I've, I don't well, use sure. any of the Wi-Fi stuff like that. I usually plug my memory cards in. But maybe that is a, a viable solution for people who want to use this on the go for photography work. If you can make it happen uh, wirelessly, that's probably fairly cool, but it's probably going to be slow. And I think that most photographers would probably stick with the USB adapter to plug in their, their card reader. At least I probably would. Now, that also means that you can't have uh, your power cord and your uh, external device plugged in at the same time. So you're sacrificing there because there, as far as I can see, there isn't any daisy chaining that you can do with with devices on USB-C, but... Uh, if somebody knows that you can, then that's that's something I'd be interested in. But you're stuck with only one device or one power cord. So there's pluses and minuses. And by the way, I don't know if you said this at the beginning. Uh, the show notes said MacBook Air, and the picture has a MacBook Air. But this is a MacBook. It's not a MacBook Air. It's not a MacBook Pro. So just a slight clarification there. Oh, sorry about that. I... Um... That's I thought okay. this was the MacBook Air. I did not know that it was not the uh, MacBook Air. Huh. Now I'm, yeah. so, I'll am i have to check my own links over and make sure that my medicine-addled brain is working correctly. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I mean, it is very similar to the Air, but the, again, the Air is is one step theoretically below this. So it's, you know, it, they're, they're trying to delineate between these three different uh, laptops. There's the Air, there's the MacBook, and there's the MacBook Pro in the Apple line. So anyway, slight clarification, just make sure. Now, covering other new fancy laptops wait, wait, here. Wait a minute. Oh. Don't you want to talk about the Apple Watch while we're talking about Macs? You oh. can. I am the least excited <laughs> man in the world about the Apple Watch. But Mitch, go ahead. Pitch me on the Ma- Apple Watch. The- what about the $10,000 version? Oh, yeah. I want solid gold on my arm that just says, come here, thieves, yeah, yeah. shoot me in the subway and take my stuff, because that's a great idea. <laughs> well, it's not aimed at you and me. It's not <laughs> aimed at people who take the subway, is it now? You and I can't afford a $10,000 watch to begin with. Yeah, that would be just ridiculous. Uh, I I just I, I wanted to throw this in because I think it's very interesting if if you've watched any of the news media stuff that there are some people that are getting really, really mad at Apple about the pricing on the on the watch, the Apple Watch, especially the ten thousand dollar plus version, and that's just starting at price. They haven't even announced the official pricing in all of these uh, special edition ones uh, because there are like Apple used to be for the quote unquote common man, right? Now there's this this new watch that that is a higher end price to watch and then the $10,000 edition is for people who are in the 1% and it's just 
funny that they're getting really pissed off at Apple for even doing a $10,000 watch. Well, I think the uh, cheapest one is their sports version. Uh, Apple right. had three tiers or two tiers of their watch, and 399 was the lowest. And if you notice, there was an announcement earlier this month to say that they would be moving the jawbone up and some of these other uh, devices out of the Apple stores in the next quarter. So Apple has basically pushed out all these devices that people were using with their iPhones in the past and moving, trying to move them specifically to the new watch. I'm not excited about a watch on my hand, especially because most of these new, uh, you know, control interface style watches don't have a lot of battery life. I mean, 18 hours, I'm going to forget to charge that thing. And, you know, what am I going to do? Like have my arm, you know, hooked up like uh, Cyber Boy to the, you know, the side of my bed charging all night long right. and then... You know, well, they don't. Yeah, they don't want you to charge it on your hand. You have to take it off and cook because the the power adapter is is thick. So <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna remove your watch while you're sleeping, which to me, by the way, removes one of the features of the health aspects of it, because now you're not monitoring yourself during your sleep mode. So I I, I think the power requirements are a little bit interesting. Uh, and again, I didn't want to go down a whole rabbit hole with this, but I just thought it was interesting that, that so many people were getting hacked off at Apple about the pricing. But, oh, by the way, the really cheapest version they have announced, there's two sizes. There's like a 38 millimeter and a 42 millimeter. And the Sport Edition, the 38 millimeter size is actually 349. So that's actually a little tiny bit cheaper than 399. What was but the anyway. new Pebble pricing? Wasn't the the latest Pebble with uh, e ink color like uh, two ninety nine or two fifty yeah, something I, like that? I think I think two ninety nine was right based on my recollection, but I haven't. Yeah, you know, take it or leave it. If you want a cool logo on your arm and you want to have an interesting interface and you want to kind of go get smart style, and then at night you want to play uh, the – what is that movie where the boy, like, unplugs his leg and plugs it in? Not quite human, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm throwing my, like, 80s references in here. But uh, I don't know. I don't think uh, <laughs> these are going to be for everybody. I think people that are really heavy into Apple will be excited about it. But I think just as many people won't be. And this will probably be the same sort of thing that we saw with every Apple product, where the first one is kind of like, here it is, but it's not really complete. And then the second one's a little bit better. Right. And then by the third generation, it's awesome. And that's what we saw with the original mm -hmm. iPhone, you know, the iPod touches and stuff like that. They kind of had to work their way into where they were a really great thing. Maybe two years from now, we'll be talking about an Apple watch that rocks. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think that's probably right, and I theoretically won't buy the first edition, but I'll go look at it when they put it in the stores. Now, moving on to other new what? devices oh, here, the new Google Pixel, another interesting, but I don't know what it would be used for a device to go along with the watch. Um, Google, if you're not familiar with the, their Chromebook series, they have a series of very affordable laptops all the way down to, I think, $149 for Asus's uh, Chromebook model. And they're basically Chrome operating system, which is mostly for web browsing with Google Docs and, and Google's cloud editing stuff. So they aren't good for most production stuff. You can't really do a lot of video editing or 
audio editing on them, but they are solid for surfing the web. Well, last year, or the year before, Google released the original Pixel, which was a really sexy-looking device that still only ran Google Chrome, which means you're still limited by all the factors of Google Chrome, and you can't kind of evolve from there. And this year, they're releasing another one. And this, again, looks really sexy, has some great specs. We're talking a 2560 by 1700 display. Uh, I believe that's a 4.3 aspect ratio as opposed to a 16 by 9. So you're you're getting more of a, a coding style aspect ratio. This has an i7 processor, 8 gigs of RAM, the specs, as you go down the list here, look really good. And the design and, and feel of this thing, it looks great. It looks like something out of, I don't know, some sort of cyberpunk thriller. And there's even a weird feature where you knock on the lid and it tells you what the battery life is. Like there's a Knight Rider style glow light that moves across the top. What the heck, though? What do you do with this? I mean, it's $999, so it's expensive. It looks really nice. It has a lot of awesome features. But then it's still a Chromebook. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I actually have to confess I've never used a Chromebook because it doesn't really appeal to me. Uh, but the whole point, I thought, was that the pricing would be like in the $200, $300 price range be really slick to be able to do most of your stuff on the web which is what a lot of people are doing anyway so why the thousand dollar price point i notice it can do 4k processing you know it it handles graphics really well Uh, but most of the comments that were on that particular thread that you posted were huh why am i going to spend a thousand dollars for a web browser yeah i don't really know what google's thinking with this maybe they're trying to advance uh, the Chromebook itself as is a new computer standard, and maybe having a high-end model like this makes it available for more people to write apps for it that would make it more useful for production activities. Or maybe this is just for people who are coding. Because, you know, you can... You can open up a couple of windows, and this is a 4-3 aspect ratio, so you can you can code on it. You can have a lot of text on the screen, and it's a really nice feature set and hardware. Maybe it's just for programmers who are you know working on HTML5 and Java stuff. I don't know. I don't know. Certainly a very interesting release. I'm not sure. It's not something I'm interested in, but there are, I'm not sure many people in our audience are interested in it. It's it's probably good, like you said, for, for web surfing. And maybe if you happen to be a business traveler and do a lot of traveling, it's small, it's light, uh, like the MacBook Air or whatever. But if you need a little bit of horsepower, it's there. I don't know. Maybe remote desktop into way, a computer that can actually do <laughs> editing and then... <laughs> to do something, yeah. By the way, I want to thank the guys that are watching live because we are broadcasting live if you haven't paid any attention in the past. Uh, if you go to uh, youtube.com slash one lone dork, which is DJ's uh, channel, you can watch us live when we film. Um, Jordan Ash and Dillomon64 pointed out that on the other side of the new MacBook, there's actually a headphone jack, which I didn't see before. I did not they see that either. Hidden it, but it is there. I've just gone and looked, and, the, and there is a little headphone jack on the other side. So, phew, we're saved. We don't have to do just pure 
Bluetooth headphones. That's good because there is not a lot of good quality Bluetooth transmitting options for high quality audio. You need to plug your headphones in. Beats headphones. Uh, Have you ever listened to those Beats headphones? If you like bass and you're all about the bass, then (laughs) that's the way to go. But otherwise, um, actually, right now I'm wearing uh, Sanul headphones. These are the. SR-1000s, I believe. Uh, They're clones of Sony's version of these original cans, and I believe they're made in the same factory. They're interchangeable for drivers and pads and everything else, and they they go on sale on B&H on occasion for 50 or 60 bucks. They're normally like $120, and they are just a classic, excellent headphone. They don't look as awesome. You know, they're not bejeweled like uh, Beats headphones, but... You know, do you need to look fashionable as you go out? Maybe you do, and maybe I'm just... Some the, people do. Yeah, I'm just the unfashionable dude, but uh, I would prefer <laughs> that if I'm spending a substantial amount of money on headphones that they don't sound like, you know, the back of someone's subwoofer car. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of updates, by the way, um, last week you and I were talking about the Teradek Video Mini and the broadcaster mini yeah. from the live stream folks. I happen to be talking to uh, Michael from Teradex this week, and I mentioned that you and I talked about it, and he said, well, true confession, you want to know the truth? I said, sure. He said, we make the broadcaster mini for the live stream guys. So DJ was absolutely right. They do look at a lot alike because Teradex actually makes <laughs> the both boxes. So bingo, good point. Huh, that is really interesting. I wonder what I was, I was thinking it was the other direction where the lower price company was maybe making it for the higher price company, but going the other direction, I wonder how that maybe because they're more expensive, they don't sell as much volume that by being able to sell to a, a you know, sell a limited version, maybe that's how they kind of make up the uh, number of sales they need to place orders and things like that. How would that work? Well, it's, I, I imagine it's very much like the uh, generic brands in your store for the groceries. You, the, you know, typically, uh, the, the makers of the name brands just say, okay, well, if you want to buy this from us at wholesale, we'll sell it to you. And they just repackage it and put it in different uh, cans and different labels. So it's just a matter of volume. Yes, you're right. They can sell more units by selling it to a live stream and let's go to it. Now, moving on down the line to uh, another thing, this is kind of the show and tell section of this particular show here. Uh, if you're watching <laughs> the video, this is great. If you're listening, I'll try and describe things as best I can. Right now, I'm holding the Ceremonic SRAX 107 in my hand. And as you can see, first impressions on this guy, it's a little bit on the big side. I was comparing this, and if you swing over to dslfilmnoob.com, you can check out the pictures. I've got this next to a BeachTech DXA SLR, which is another common XLR interface, and it's about a quarter inch taller. It's about a half inch longer, but it's narrower this direction, so that's the kind of size difference. It's about the size, roughly, of a a double battery pack for your camera. So if you're adding a battery grip to your camera, it, you're in the same boat with this guy. The controls and stuff, if we turn this on here, let me find the power switch. It does have 
a very nice glowing screen. Unfortunately, you can't see that in this particular video because uh, it's uh, blowing out of the display. But when you turn AGC on on this guy, it actually has level indicators on the screen that are pretty nice. And I've just started to mess around with this a little bit, so I can't report 100% on it. But feel and build-wise, it does feel really nice. It does have multiple size quarter 20 as well as 3 eighths on the bottom for adapting to tripods. And it has the thumb wheel... Its uh, control knobs feel really nice and smooth, and the nub buttons are really easy to get to. And of course, your XLR is coming in where you want it to, in the front of the camera, instead of off to the side or in a weird position, and your knobs are where you want them to be, in the back of the camera where you can get to them and make adjustments. I wouldn't recommend mounting this under your camera. A lot of the other units... Uh, like the Beach Tech and the Juice Link, are designed kind of weird off-axis. And the reason they do that is so you can drop the batteries out of your camera while it's mounted. This one is not designed for that. It's designed to just attach to something. So I'm thinking probably the best way to go with this would be to mount it to the side of your rig or, or something like that. So that way you still have access to everything you need to get to, but it's not blocking the battery port if you have some sort of quick access to batteries or to use it with a battery grip. Mitch, you got any questions on this thing as I'm holding it in my hand? No, it looks pretty cool. I'm I'm very impressed by the size. It's a little well, it's a little <laughs> big. I would love to see it a little bit thinner. Yeah. Um, but I, you're absolutely right in terms of the battery compartment. You definitely want to mount that to the side if you can. I was kind of emailing him back and forth asking why it had to be so big. And apparently this has isolating transformers in it. So the isolating transformers take up a substantial amount of space inside the package. And that was part of the reason they went with the bigger design. <laughs> is so you want better audio. Well, part of the getting better audio is fitting that better audio gear into the device itself. This is... Well, I guess. But if Apple were to do it, it would be a hell of a lot thinner, wouldn't it? Can we make it thinner? <laughs> you know, more petite. Can we make it gold? Did yeah. you see that the yeah. that MacBook is coming in multiple colors, too? What is that? Really? Yeah. Is this like the Nano really? all over again? <sighs> yes. Sorry. Uh, I know. Uh, next up on my comparison thing here, and kind of show and tell if I can figure out where I set it. Here it is, right here next to me. Uh Uh-oh. Good thing I'm paying attention here. This guy right here (laughs) is the other thing that I've got in right now for review, and this is the Asden 30L... or 30... 330 LT dual-channel adapter. And the reason I wanted to kind of show this on the cast was because here is your receiver pack unit right here. And I have in my hand also a receiver from the uh, Sennheiser units that I normally use. Now, when I was talking about size, this is basically two of these jammed into a single shell. So side by side, if you're looking at it, the Sennheiser is roughly half the size of the Asden 330 LT unit. So you are kind of trading off the petite size of the GH or the G3 for the Asden 330LT. This guy does bring in two channels of audio, though, whereas this only brings in one. So do you want one large unit attached to your camera, or do you want two smaller units attached to your camera in multiple places? I don't know which one is better. It kind of depends on what you're working on. Mitch, what do you think, bigger or smaller? Well, like you said, it totally depends. Uh, You have to have these bigger devices if you're going to save. I mean, if you were doing two channels, you'd have two of the smaller ones. So maybe it makes sense to just have one device. 
if they work as well. And it, the, uh, the Asden was cheaper, as I recall, right? Yeah, this is um, a whole I, bunch. I believe six six fifty or seven hundred for the entire right. unit, and these are five ninety nine to six fifty a piece. So you're getting a single stereo or a single channel mono for the same price as you're getting two channels. And this unit also comes with uh, multiple lav packs. So the lav packs are pretty much identical in size to the Sennheiser units. Uh, they're right. slightly taller, a little bit thinner, uh, but for the most part, I would say they're on par with each other. They are plastic though. So one of the things that makes the Sennheiser G2 and G3 series so sexy is they're all metal. They have a metal covering all around it. They're really solid. This one, you can see there's ding marks on the side right here where it's been dropped multiple times. And they hide the controls actually underneath of the battery compartment here so that people can't tamper with and mess up the settings while they have their pack on. On the downside to that, the mute feature on these, you have to kind of either scroll through or turn it off on the receiver. So... We've had cases where people have taken these to the bathroom and not <laughs> turned them off, and we have crew monitors uh, in the area, so then everybody can hear so-and-so as she goes to the bathroom or as he goes to the bathroom, and it's a little bit awkward, so you know, be aware of that. Uh, these guys, they I do did, have... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just said I, I have to confess that I did that when I was out on the tour last year year and a half ago went into the bathroom with my <laughs> microphone on and and started chatting with some guy and i suddenly realized the mic was on and like broadcasting back to a room full of people <laughs> not fun yeah one of the nice things about the asden is actually they have a standby switch right here on the front so you can as the wearer mute this whenever you need to while you're walking around you can still do that via the menu on here but the Sennheiser, you have to hold down some buttons and then go set and scroll through some menus, and it's pretty complicated. So oh, that would be bad. Yes. I mean, if you're doing a live thing like we were, that would be horrible. I mean, I'd have to take the whole box off and leave it back in the room to go to the bathroom. So I'm still testing these out. Those menus. But they are pretty yeah. pretty sexy so far. I did change out the lav mics. The included lav mics suck. Um, they do provide right. power at the port on your transmitters so you can use other powered lavs uh countryman i believe is one of the manufacturers uh road also makes some good lav mics and this does have the uh, screw-on type connector at the top mitch what do you normally use for your lavs i know we've talked about your iphone do you do you have another set that you own specifically or um i simply use road stuff so um i have the smart lav and i have the regular labs I have not experimented with other labs. I uh, used to use the Sony UXPs, and those are pretty nice as well. Um, It's pretty much a wash between those and the Sennheiser units for the included mic and everything. But the Asden, man, for the price, it's such a bargain. And then it's so nice to have audio directly into your camera for both channels. And since they're both on isolated channels, you can you know, work with the the one speaker's voice in post and the other speaker's voice in post and correct any sort of noises or anything like that, as opposed to it all being mushed together into a single mono channel. So those are some cool things. I'm sorry. I'm still curious to see what the the new Rode wireless, the Rode link, as they call it. Yeah. Do you know any more about that? I'm waiting for them to ship me some because I... I'm special and they just love me, right? <laughs> um, but 
the price on that is so much nice. You keep talking about the Asden being inexpensive. The the new road link is priced at three ninety nine. So I'm really excited to see that. Now but, is, is the road again, link stereo or is it, it mono? Because I, I thought that I thought was a single mono. channel. So yeah, it's mono. Yeah, so a single channel that's still four hundred a piece. So eight hundred bucks you'd save. Um, what, right, one hundred and fifty or so. Not to throw right. you under the With bus, the Rudd. It, no, but I, I was com- I was more sort of comparing it to the uh, Sennheiser, which is six hundred, six ninety nine, yeah. or whatever. So, yeah, I'm interested to see any uh, to see. info you've got on that when it comes out because I want to know kind of how they're doing the Wi-Fi and how well that works in congested Wi-Fi areas. That uh, Monoprice yeah, unit I was testing out previously. It gets pretty sketchy fast as soon as you get into any yeah. sort of Wi-Fi dense area. And I only have like six signals in my neighborhood, so it's not what I would consider saturated. And it was still kind of giving me a few dropouts here and there. So, Yeah. All right, moving on. Last thing on the list here is the pick of the week. Mitch, what do you got, man? I picked this week uh, Den Lenny's new book. I don't know if you know Den Lenny. Have you ever met Den? He's he's an awesome guy. He's over from the UK. Have you met him? No, I have not. Okay. Den, Den is a Sony guy. He's very in bed with Sony, has been working with them for many years, helped uh, work on free products before they actually get shipped. But he's also a great filmmaker, and he has a new book called Business for Filmmakers and it's priced at 38.92 which is you know not exactly cheap but Den runs a great business. He is making really good money. Uh, and so have a look at Den's new book. It's businessforfilmmakers.com. We have a review of it. Hugh Brownstone, one of our writers, bought it and absolutely loves it. And I have not yet gotten a copy but if you're if you're a filmmaker looking to make some money, have a look at Den's book. So is it basically focused on finance then, or? Yeah, I mean it's it's how to run a business. How how can you charge more, do more, get more, uh, more customers that pay you? <laughs> That's one of his big things. Of of I know if if a lot of people are telling me that they have customers that they shoot for, and then they're not getting paid for 60 to 90 to 180 days. I'm like, well, you can't survive like that. So Den's got some great advice on running your business, setting it up. And he, he he's talking in his promo video about being a six figure business for filmmaking. So if you're not making six figures, maybe you're interested in, in accelerating your pricing. That's what he's focused on is the business side of it. And there are very few people talking about the business side of filmmaking. You know, it's, it's kind of like an untop, untalked about topic. And that uh, so, being paid yeah. late thing is actually a pretty big deal. I work uh, occasionally, I do safety videos for a oil rig company. And as a standard practice and policy, they don't pay anybody for 90 days out, period. Right. And I, that, you know, no matter how much you have them or anything, even their like suppliers, their machinists, yep. everything, 
and I'm just the lowly camera guy shooting safety videos for the oil rig. And they're like, we're not paying you for 90 days. Deal with it. You know? And so basically if you had to buy stuff for the shoot or you had to spend money on things, you're not going to get reimbursed for 90 days. And they're sitting on that making interest or, you know, whatever financial benefit that provides for them. And you're out that money until you get paid for the job. So that definitely sucks. Um, it was a very big thing when I was working for Boeing. They they didn't pay anybody for ninety to one hundred and eighty days either. So it's it's common for big business. Now books Go are ahead. an interesting thing. Do you have any other book recommendations? Good reads for uh, filmmakers in general. Well, there is one book right over here over my shoulder. If you're watching online, and maybe you've seen it, maybe you just thought it was just kind of hanging there. But it's the DSLR Filmmakers Handbook by Barry Anderson. Um, awesome book. One of the best I've read, if not the best, uh, but you might want to not buy it yet because I know he's just finished version two, which is at the publisher and should be out in a month or two. Uh, but DSLR filmmakers handbook by Barry Anderson is awesome book. It's one of the, it's really the best on the market for somebody who's shooting with a DSLR. Now, on the writing side of things, one book recommendation I'm going to throw out there, and this is actually what I was thinking about when I started asking about this, is um, Save the Cat, (laughs) the last book on screenwriting you'll ever need. If you are new to writing, this book basically provides a very formulaic and easy way to move forward with a script that you're stuck in. Uh, it makes a, it gives you a lot of different examples and ways in which you can pull forward when you're stuck in the writing process. And I know a lot of people, when they're doing narrative stuff, they're writing for themselves. And they get to that point where they're like, I, what do I do now? Um, if you read this book, it's really short. I think it's only 250 pages or so. And it basically just nails home every step you need in order to accomplish um, your screen screenplay or whatever you're working on. And that way you can get from the writing process to the filmmaking process a lot faster. I know a number of us are out there a lot of times looking for fully written pieces so that we can start filming them as opposed to trying to write them ourselves, which, you know, sometimes doesn't work out. And it's really hard sometimes to think of good plots and stuff. So Save the Cat, the last book on screenwriting you'll ever need. It's uh, $10.99 on Amazon. Definitely well worth checking out. Great. Now, last bit here, and this is my pick of the week, actually, since we got kind of off track on the books here. Um, This is the Canon FD 35-105 to lens. This is an old, old monster, and it is cheap. If you go on to eBay right now, you can find this for as low as $40. And the reason is, is because it's an FD lens, this is not good for those of you who are shooting on full-frame bodies because uh, Canon's full-frame cameras don't have enough space to adapt, so you have to use a lens filter. But as you can see here, I've got this on the EOS M. And anything with a narrow flange distance, the Sony uh, cameras and so on, this zoom is a fixed f-stop across the entire zoom range. So... You don't have to worry about that darkening effect that you get with a kit lens, and it's pretty decent for filmmaking. F3.5 is is fairly usable, and for the price, man, this is cheap. I always get this question from people, and, and the question is, what lens do I buy, and I only have like $100? Well, there aren't a lot of choices <laughs> at the $100 mark that don't just completely suck. 
And I can safely say that this lens does not completely suck. In fact, it does things other than suck. Is in, It does a good job. It even has a macro switch. I don't use that very much. I haven't tested that part. But, heck, you can buy the adapter for your camera for about $20 on B&H or Amazon or whatever. And you can pick up this lens for under 60 bucks, and it'll be a good starter lens if you're just beginning to build your kit. It's manual focus. It's uh, manual zoom. And the smooth action on this guy is really nice for both zooming and for focusing. So you can pull focus on this with the hard end stops. It's got a clicked aperture. I believe there's a tutorial out there to declick the aperture if you really want to do that. But man, is this a cheap bargain for those of you who are just starting out in filmmaking looking for an extremely cheap lens. <laughs> cash, cash, cash. I want you to say something, though, by the way. Uh, we, we often throw words out, and we sort of assume that everybody knows what we're talking about. And you said something a minute ago that I'm not sure everybody necessarily understands. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But I thought I'd just get you to talk a little bit about what the heck a narrow flange distance is and what it means. You threw that out there really quickly, but... Some people might not understand that. That's a good point, Mitch. Um, A lot of times, because I'm familiar with it, I assume everybody else is, but that's not usually the case. So let me open up this EOS M here and show you what I'm talking about. The flange is actually referred to as this metal portion right here around the lens attachment portion of the camera. When they say a narrow distance, it means the distance from the flange to the sensor itself. So if you see here, there's the sensor for the EOS M. There is maybe, you know, 20 millimeters or so of distance between the flange and the sensor itself. If you're working on a Canon DSLR, a full frame DSLR, for example, that has a reflex mirror that pops up and down. Because of that movement that has to happen, the sensor has to be further away from the imaging element, and so the flange is further out. So you can't use certain lenses because of the way the lens was designed. For example, this FD lens, when the FD lenses were made, they were designed to be closer to where the image was captured. FD lenses were originally designed to go with uh, film cameras, but uh, they were closer to the film exposure section, and you can think of the sensor as the film exposure section. So with narrow flange distance cameras, you can put an adapter in there, a spacer, that basically represents the difference between this narrow flange distance and the original flange distance from the sensor of the camera that the lens was designed for. In this case, the FD lens, it looks like, what, about an inch and a quarter or so of flange distance between the uh, original FD mount and the EOS mount. That spacer is basically moving the lens far enough away from the sensor to make it optically focus on the sensor itself. Is that a good a good enough explanation, Mitch, or have I kind of gone down the rat hole with That's... like the optical focusing and all that business? No, that makes a lot of sense. I just and I think it's great that we periodically take a little bit of time and and educate people while we're at it. And and part of the problem also is that some lenses actually move their rear lens element rear back element. and forth, right? Yep. And and so sometimes if you don't have enough flange distance, that rear element can either bump into the mirror as you said or even all the way back to the sensor, which is a major problem. So you have to you have to learn what that's about in order to properly evaluate, especially these older lenses that may not have that distance. So it's it's important not only for the focus, as you mentioned, but physically those elements may not fit 
because they may stick back into the camera from the rear of the flange where it attaches. They may actually poke back into the sensor area, which is a problem. One other thing I'd like to mention, too, um, a lot of people in the early days were recommended FD lenses for Canon shooters as a cheap alternative. There are a few ways to use FD lenses in a good way on your camera, and those are usually a ring-type adapter where you actually disassemble the end of the lens and put in a narrower adapter piece in order to attach it to the camera. And if you do that method, it actually brings the lens itself into the camera body. As mentioned, you have to watch out for the the mirror smacking up against the back of the lens. But if you do that method, you're getting the actual quality of the lens into your camera. The other method is a focal enlarger, and the focal enlarger goes between the lens and the camera and adds another lens element. It doesn't, they don't tell you about this when they're selling you these, but it reduces the amount of light that gets into your camera one. So you're, even though you're shooting on say an F1.2 or an F1.4, you're not really getting that, that amount of light into the camera. So that's reduced. And you're going through a third party, maybe you pay 20 or $30 for this adapter, kind of crappy lens system to get into the camera. So now your lens that was sharp and nice looking starts to look pretty crappy. So be really careful if anybody's recommending that you go with FD lenses for a Canon body. The other thing I want to note is that there are a ton of Sony, and Sony's really good about this, of narrow flange distance cameras that can be adapted to just about any sort of of lens on the market. And again, that's because the flange itself is really close to where the sensor is. So all you do is add spacers to get the focal length correct. And that means that stuff like the EOS M or Sony's NEX series, or even Sony's newer cameras like the A7S are able to attach to pretty much anything you can throw at them. And that's one of the things that makes them really attractive and also makes the EOS M really attractive. By the way, the EOS M can be had for about $199 new. And you can find it even cheaper in the $140 range. And this is the exact same sensor as the 7D, all the T2 through T6Is or what have you. And it is a great little camera for the price. These two combinations right here, you're talking maybe $240. And now you have a good starter video solution for filmmakers that is really budget friendly. I mean, what can you buy besides a GoPro that can get you going right out of the shoot? And you don't really want the look of a GoPro all the time. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and and the GoPro is actually two ninety nine, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so it's probably a little more expensive. So, yeah. I mean that that's really great advice. I hadn't hadn't really thought about the EOS M as that much of a film camera because again, I typically do both. I do film and video. Stills and video. Uh, So I tend to look for cameras that can do both well. And I know the EOS M has that real bad shutter lag to it when you're taking stills. Yeah, don't use this for stills. It completely Uh, sucks. It's awful for stills. Um, But for video, you know, you're not doing any of that sort of thing. It's just on all the time. So then it looks pretty nice. Have you seen, you know, I know we're kind of like uh, barreling off a little bit. Have you seen the new EOS M Mark three, I believe with it's like flip up screen as opposed to, to the side. I've, I've seen their marketing for it, but I haven't seen one physically yet. No, I think that's only going to be sold uh, in the first uh, or the current quarter in Japan and that area, but it may right. come to the United States. That would make this camera 
even more attractive. If that one falls off in price as this one did and just becomes really cheap, nothing would be better than having a a monitor that pointed directly at you. You could use this for, you know, people are doing YouTube videos, for example. If you want to just film yourself, you know, talking into the camera about something or doing a product shot or something like that, you can set the camera up up here somewhere and you can flip the screen up like so, and now you're good to go instead of having to use the HDMI output. Now, the other thing about the Yasm is that it does support a sort of beta version of Magic Lantern, so you can get audio levels, uh, focus peaking, and some of the other features that make Magic Lantern kind of sexy. No headphone monitoring, and if you're trying to go wireless with this, it's not going to work. So those are a couple of the caveats. But again, $199 or less, man, that is really cheap for this guy. That is amazing. That's a, a, an incredible recommendation, and I may have to take one and take you up on that. <laughs> I know a lot of guys that Walk, actually walk. use it as their danger camera because, you right? know, if you put tape on this, gaffer's tape or whatever, and you just, like, slap it onto something, this thing is incredibly light. It's really cheap, so if you break it, it's not that big a deal. And in this case, I've got the, um, the EOS M-mount 22-millimeter. Uh, uh, I believe this is, what, an F... Two and the, these lenses are really cheap too, so you can pick this guy up for uh, under a hundred dollars. And now you have a good prime that doesn't take up much space. Uh, Twenty-two. What's that work out to in one po- times one point seven? That's like forty-ish equivalent. You know, right? So you know, this is like basically a forty millimeter on a full frame. And man, now this is your footprint for f- for filmmaking. And f two is still enough to make the background knock out and you can get it like, you know, maybe a foot and a half away from you. So then you can still operate the controls from, you know, from the shoot. cheaper than an iPhone. I know. And it's got a bigger <laughs> sensor. Yeah. I might have to pick one of those up. You're, you're starting to sell me on this. Um, and while I'm selling this, I might as well tell you this is because it uses the same sensor. It's good to about uh, 1600 ISO. Whereas what's your iPhone good to before it just starts going to Chrome? Yeah, nothing. You have to really light for the iPhone. Yeah. So that's the other thing is that with this guy, you know, you can actually get down into what I would consider somewhat bad lighting and still get perfectly good video. You can just put in a couple of uh, CFL floods back in the corner or whatever, and you're probably going to have enough light to film at like 800 or 1600 ISO and get usable good footage. The uh, crappy parts about this, though, are if you look down here at the bottom, the memory card goes in the battery compartment, which is always obnoxious. And the batteries on here, I believe, are 1,400 or 1,500 milliamp hours, so they don't have an incredibly long battery life. And I know the battery compartment comes off, but I do not know if they sell any kind of grip for this guy. You can get a dummy battery and hook this up to some other external device if you want to, but uh, I don't know how well that will work, especially as small. And I mean, a battery pack hooked up to this would be like doubling the size or tripling the size. It doesn't happen to take the same batteries as the T4i and stuff, does it? Uh, no, those are um, yeah. those batteries are LPE8. Uh, the batteries right. on these, I believe, are LPE9. I I can see them across the room, but I did not grab one to read the battery <laughs> label. Um, it's okay, but it is it's not okay. the same. The uh, LPE8 batteries have that kind of little uh, nipple sort of thing on the side with the four wires right. that plug in. Uh, this one has. 
uh, three prongs that are actually on the side of the battery, and the battery itself is a complete square. So it does not okay. work with those, unfortunately. But you can, because this camera was so unpopular, um, you can buy <laughs> all kinds of accessories for it, and batteries are really cheap. Yeah, I bet. That's really where you benefit with this is because no one liked it and they thought of it as a, a an actual point-and-shoot camera. It is unpopular as all get out. No one likes it at all for stills. But for video, it's often overlooked because they they hate it so much for stills that they never bothered to think about it for a video tool. But as a video camera itself, this thing is pretty awesome. It's almost all screen on the back. You know, it's pretty easy to use. You can install Magic Lantern. You get audio levels. You got audio inputs to record. You got HDMI out so you can feed a monitor and it'll adapt to any lens like this really cheap 35 to 105. Man. Man, I should stop getting so excited about this. But this is also the camera I lend to people when they're like, "Hey DJ, can I uh can I rent a camera from you?" But I don't really have any money. I'm like, "Okay. I'll tell you what, man. I'll do you a solid and I'll send you home with the EOS M, but I am not lending you anything else because the rest of the stuff actually you have to pay for to rent." So this is like, "Do your do your friend a favor camera." And it's still good enough, man. It's still good enough. Yeah. I mean, especially with the fact that it has the 7D sensor in it. Um, that's awesome. On that note, Mitch, oh, yeah. go ahead. No, 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 that's fine. We're we're done. We're at this an hour and 16 minutes. I think these people are done with us. All right. <laughs> All right, guys, on that note, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap things up. I'm going to go self-medicate some more because, as you've probably seen watching the video, I've been coughing off a microphone off and on, and I've had to wipe the uh, runny nose a few times, so that is very unattractive. Mitch, where can people find you, man? There's a website called... I think you've heard of it. It's planet5d.com. And that's where I am. You can also find me at planetmitch.com because I've got a lot of interesting other side products. I'm starting to put some more information out of planetmitch.com. And so I'll say... Goodbye, dear. Goodbye. Goodbye. You didn't cough fast enough. Sorry. I know, right? <laughs> didn't give me enough time there. Uh, the other thing to check out is Mitch's feed for NAB. Make sure you swing over to either Planet 5D or one of the other sites that's affiliated with that stream and take a look at all the NAB stuff that's going on because he has a really great system for covering that. That'll be on DSLRFilmNoob.com. It'll be on uh, Mitch's site, Planet 5D, and it'll be on a number of other blogs. Mitch, you probably know more of the blogs. Are there any off the top of your head that you want to throw out there real quick? Uh, well, there are a lot of awesome blogs, of course, that are covering it, especially if you want to just remember something, NABLiveBlog.com. Oh, that's easier. Planet 5D's live blog. So I, I thought, hell, I'll just buy this URL because it'll be easy. That's NABLiveBlog.com. But Canon Rumors is going to be hosting it. Photo uh, Focus, which um, Richard Harrington is running Photo Focus these days. It used to be Scott Bourne that was doing that. Uh, we've got some really awesome websites, which I can't mention yet, that we're negotiating with uh, some major, major players in the news industry. So lots of great places. I'll update you again uh, the week before NAB on those sites. Uh, I will not be here next week, by the way. I think I sent you an email. That yes, uh, Jonathan will be filling in for you. So Jonathan will be here next week, which is awesome. But unfortunately, I will be out of town. But 
we'll talk about that again just before NAB. Awesome. You guys can find this podcast on any of the podcast distribution platforms, including iTunes, SoundCloud, and so on. Be sure to like us. It doesn't hurt to help. You make us move up the thread and more people listen. Then we can bring people in like Mitch to talk every week and enjoy our company. On that note, swing over to DSLRFilmNoob.com to check everything else out. Find us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook. All under DSLRFilmNoob.com and Planet5D. Thanks, guys, again for listening to another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. (laughs) 